morning, everybody. Happy almost new year. Here we go. Uh, I'm, my name is Mark Freestead. I, I oversee our staff working with kids and youth here at the church. I've got one question for you this morning. Is Christmas over? No, Christmas is not over. So you keep on celebrating. You keep playing that Christmas music. You keep those Christmas lights on until February 2nd, okay? You have my permission to do that. And Merry Christmas from all the Freestead kids here. We'll show you. We added a third this year. There he is. Yeah. All right. So yeah, Christmas is not over. If you're keeping score at home, this is the seventh day of Christmas, as in the 12 days of Christmas. This is the seventh day today, and that'll take us up to the 12th day, which will be on January 5th. And then after that, we celebrate what's known as Epiphany, which is, uh, commemorates when the wise men came to visit Jesus, even though it wasn't 12 days later. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, that's the day we traditionally remember. And that's where we're going to go in our passage this morning as we close out the series, Surprised by Joy, will be in Matthew chapter 2. Um, about six months ago, when we were putting the twins to bed, they started asking us to tell them bedtime stories. So they would say, Dad, tell us a story about when you were little. And so I started, you know, picking up things from my memory when I was five, six, seven years old and try to tell them fun stories. Um, but the problem was, there's two problems. Number one, I would run out of stories. So then I'd have to recycle. And they'd say, no, you told us that one already. But secondly, there was never enough detail for them. So I'd get to the end of what I thought was a pretty good story and they'd say, that wasn't long enough. That's not a good story. Tell us another one. They wanted more and more and more. And that's what can happen to us when we read the story of the Magi or the wise men in Matthew chapter 2. There's a whole lot that we think that we know about the wise men that we actually don't, that the Bible actually doesn't supply. And so then the question is, what do we do with a story like that? And why would God leave all these unanswered questions and, and, and loose ends for us in a story? And so my goal this morning is, we're going to put up this picture here of... Uh, possibly uh, the Magi. My goal is not to get us caught here. The gold. What's his name? Why is he dressed like that? Well, there must be a clue to the country that he came from. I don't want to get us stuck there. My goal this morning is to take us here. Go to the next slide. Oh, yeah, no, not here. Next one. Sorry. That's another picture. But our goal, my goal is to take us here. Okay. And to try to answer the question, when the Bible kind of starves us of details in a story, then how do we not get stuck in the details that we don't have? How do we not get stuck and build a doctrine around things that we don't know? But how do we back out and ask ourselves the question, how does this story function within the broader story that God is telling through the whole Bible? That's what we want to do this morning. So we'll look at this story. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. We'll answer whatever questions we can try to answer about the Magi. And then we'll talk about how this functions in the big, broad story of the whole Bible. So the Magi comes from Matthew chapter 2. Uh, it's kind of the add-on to the Christmas story. You know, it's not part of Luke's gospel story. And sometimes we skip over it because we're in such a hurry to finish Christmas. Oh, it's New Year's. We've got to take everything down and get ahead. But here's the Magi from Matthew chapter 2. And it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. 
When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." So who or what are the Magi? This word is used in different ways uh, in literature of that time, but they were not magicians, even though the word is similar. They didn't go around pulling rabbits out of their hats, but the word is in there, Magi, magicians. You think about what a magician has or does. A magician has knowledge that you don't have. That's why they're able to trick you, because they know things that you don't know. And so the Magi were most likely astrologers who studied the stars and the planets and all the patterns, and they knew at different times of the year there was different alignment among the things that were in the skies, and most people didn't know those things. Most people back then didn't even learn to read. So these guys not only could read, but they understood science and they understood astronomy, and so they had this secret knowledge, and that's why they can also be called wise men. See? You get it? Because most people weren't wise to those things. That's why we sometimes call them the wise men. But these magi lived somewhere, the Bible says, uh, to the east, which makes sense, because when you're in Israel, everything is to the east. If they came from the west, they would have been swimming to there. And why did this even make sense to them? Why would it make sense to watch the stars and say, oh, man, that one, we got to go. We got to go to Jerusalem. Well, we don't know exactly where they came from. We don't know what country they came from, but it's possible that they came from Babylon. And so, if you look there on the map, in the center of the map, you can see the city of Babylon, the greater region is Babylon, and here's little Israel over here and Jerusalem. And about 600 years before Jesus was born, the Jews were kicked out of Israel and they were sent away, most of them, to Babylon, where they established new homes and cultural centers and the synagogue tradition of teaching weekly began there. And after 70 years, some of them were allowed back, and then more were allowed back, more were allowed back, but some never left. Some of the Jews just stayed in Babylon. So it's possible that if the Magi came from Babylon, there would have been Jews there, and they may have known of the tradition. Oh, there's these people, they had lived in Israel, then they came here and settled, but they are expecting a coming king and a Messiah. That might have been familiar to the Magi if they came from Babylon, but we don't know for sure. That's just the theory. When did they come? Well, the Bible gives us two clues. One is at the beginning of chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem. After. When after? 12 days later? Mm, probably not. If they came from a long ways away, it would have taken a lot more time. But we don't know. We don't know exactly when the wise men or the magi showed up. The other clue comes down beginning in verse 13. It talks about Herod's plan to wipe out this new king of the Jews because he was the king of the Jews. 
And we know that Herod went after every boy who was under the age of two years old in Bethlehem and had them killed. You say, did that really happen? Yeah, that really happened. Bethlehem was very small, so it wasn't probably a great number of babies. But the clue from the text is if he went under, after everybody who was under two years old, that means Jesus could have been a year, could have been a year and a half by the time that the wise men showed up. But we just don't know. Why did they go to Jerusalem and not straight to Bethlehem? Well, it stands to reason that if they're searching for the king of the Jews, they're going to go to the capital of Israel, which was Jerusalem. Or who knows? Maybe they just sat around and they were royal tourists, right? They looked at the heavens and they watched for planetary alignment and they would see it. They would say, okay, now let's go to this one over here. Okay, now let's go to this one over here. And the first service didn't laugh at that joke either. And neither did you all. But maybe that's what they did. Who knows? They just wanted a selfie with all the newborn babies. We don't know exactly if there were three of them. We assume that there were because of the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But if you read it carefully, the Bible absolutely doesn't say. We don't know that they rode camels. They probably rode something if they were coming from a long ways away, but it could have been horses. We don't know their names. The names of the wise men came later. That's a medieval tradition, but it's not indicated by the Bible. What we do know is two important things. Number one, they knew that with Jesus, they were dealing with something special. For some reason, they were willing to make that journey when they saw the star in the sky and when they found him, I mean, it's a weird thing, right? They, they find it. What's it over? Okay, where are we going? There's the house. So there's these people we've never met, but we're going to come in and, and these grown men are going to fall over face down. That's the Greek word for worship here. They fall over face down, paying homage to Jesus, the baby. And they gave him gifts. And the second thing that we know is that they outwitted Herod the Great because Herod had a plan, and it was a, pl a plan to preserve himself. So let's talk about Herod the Great here for just a minute. Verses 3 through 8 talk about Herod's deceptive little ploy. And it says that when King Herod heard that they were looking for the king of the Jews, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why was he disturbed? Because he was the king of the Jews, and now they're coming looking for the king of the Jews. And Herod the Great was not that great. Uh, Herod the Great is called Herod the Great because of the great things that he did in building up Israel, especially the temple area. When they came back from Babylon and there was no temple, they rebuilt a temple, but it was a simple temple. And the Bible says that the elders wept because they remembered the old temple and the new temple was kind of plain and ordinary by comparison. But one of the things that Herod the Great did is he poured all kinds of money into public works in Israel, including building up that temple complex in that temple area. Now, he didn't do this because he loved God. He did this because he loved himself. Let me explain that. Herod the, uh, the Great was a kind of a weird guy to be chosen the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, because he himself was not fully Jewish. His dad was a convert to Judaism, and his mom was completely not Jewish at all. And so what happens is uh, Rome conquers the Holy Land uh, about 60 years before Jesus is born. 
And in order to cement their control over that area, they choose different rulers of local regions, say, now you're going to be the king. So Herod was actually chosen to be the king of Israel, but then he had to survive a civil war. So he was, didn't actually fully become in charge for about three or four years. And all of his reign, you see, Herod is worried about losing what he had control of. So he's going to do everything that he can. It's been said of him that he was a Roman to the Romans and a Jew to the Jews. Herod's going to do everything that he can to keep Rome on his good side and to keep the Jews who he's ruling over on his good side. That's one of the reasons he pours all that money into the development of the temple complex. But Herod's also quite paranoid. And so in order to cement people's allegiance to him, he marries a, a princess from one of the ruling Jewish families. And then about five years into their marriage, he has her killed because he's suspicious that she's plotting to overthrow him. But then the, 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 the history has it that he preserved her body in honey because he was going to miss her too much and he needed to go and gaze on her beauty from time to time. Three of his sons he had murdered. He had extravagant palaces for himself. He was absolutely ruthless in the way that he ruled uh, or, or in the way that he punished his enemies. Okay, so that's the story on Herod, quote-unquote, the great. So now I throw the question to you. Give me some words, knowing what you know, give me some words that describe Herod the Great. What's one? Tyrant. Tyrant. Okay, that's a good word. Psycho. Okay. <laughs> Merciless. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Paranoid. Idiotic. Okay. Yeah. I mean. The truth about Herod the Great was he was willing to use, he was a Jew to the Jews, he was willing to use Judaism when it worked to his own advantage. And the lesson from Herod the Great's life for us is don't be a Herod the Great. Don't, Herod the Great had as much of God as he wanted and no more than that. He used the religion of the people and the culture to his advantage, but not all the way. So now Jesus is born, and the wise men come from a foreign country and say, show us the person who's been king of the Jews, because Jesus was born to be the king of the Jews and grew up to be the king of everyone, wanting everything, interested in every aspect of your life. And Herod's kingship was based on self-preservation, self-promotion. Jesus' kingship is based on his supremacy and yours and my holiness. Do you see the difference? Herod was in it for himself, and he would use the people's allegiance. He would buy the people's allegiance. Oh, let me build you a fancy new temple in order to prop himself up. Jesus comes, and he lowers himself, and then God the Father exalts him, and then what he wants from us is not continued political support, not taxes. He wants the allegiance of our hearts a very different kind of ruler. So don't be a Herod the Great, where you only take enough of God just to suit you. Be a follower of Jesus, where you take more and more and more, and you say, God, don't be done with me yet. God, keep doing the purifying work inside of me, because I know 
there's more that you want to do inside of me. When Herod the Great dies, he divides the, the area of Judea into three sectors, and each of his sons get one sector. And one of those Herods is the Herod that you read about in the Easter story, who wants to see Jesus, this, this guy claiming to be the king of the Jews. He wants to question him. He wants to mock him. He wants to laugh at him. And eventually, he shrugs at his execution. Yeah, away with this guy. We don't need this guy. So the existing leaders of the Jews were not leading their people anywhere good. And it was time for Jesus to come and be the rightful king. So let's not be a King Herod. Now, back to the Magi. To summarize, did they ride camels? We don't know. What were their names? We don't know. Where exactly did they come from? We don't know. What was the significance of the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh? We don't know. What did Mary and Joseph spend all that gold on? We don't know. We don't know. So when the Bible gives us stories and there's all these unanswered questions, then we've got to step back from that and say, okay, with all these things that we don't know, that we'd like to know, but we don't know, what is the purpose of this story? Why would God preserve this account and not give us his names or tell us how they got there or exactly the date that they arrived? But there's a purpose that this story is in the Bible for. What is it? And the answer is this. The calling of the Magi and the Magi coming in and visiting Jesus when he is a young child is part of a continuing pattern that God has been unfolding in bits and pieces through the Old Testament, but it's going to blast into full view in the New Testament. But it's part of a pattern where God has been working through the nation of Israel, his chosen people, his chosen nation, and using that chosen nation to reach outsiders. See, to God, it's not an either-or. It's not either these people or those people. It's those people through these people. Let me show you what I mean. God chose the Jews to be his people. No question about that. No question about that. God chose the Jewish nation, and he did not choose other nations to fulfill his plan. There's no question about that. Of all the nations, the people groups on the earth God could have chosen, he picked one. But he didn't choose that one to pour blessing into at the exclusion of others. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 23. He's prophesying through Ezekiel. He says, Then the nations, the nations will know that I am the Lord when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. See what God is saying he's going to do? He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you I'm going to pour my blessings into you, and then it's going to go through you and out to all the other nations. Think what God said when he called Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have a child. God says, I'm going to give you a son. <laughs> yeah, right. God says, no, I'm going to give you a son, and now look up at the stars in the sky. Try to count them. That's the number of descendants that you're going to have through me. And why did God do that? Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your family, and then you're just going to keep that blessing to yourselves forever and ever is not what God said. When he blessed Abraham, he said, Abraham, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. See how it works? As an individual Christian, 
If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, there was a moment that God called you because no one can come to the Father unless God enables that first. So there was a moment where God identified you and said, now is the time. I am extending my invitation and my hand to you. And he did that to forgive your sins. He did that to give you an assurance of eternal life and your eternal destiny. Where are you going to go when you die? He did that so that you didn't have to be on edge, but you could feel loved by the creator of the universe. And he gave you all these spiritual blessings but not so that it could dead end inside of you, but it would go through you and then out to others, continuing the pattern that God started in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, Paul stands on Mars Hill, and he's debating with the philosophers, you know, who is God? What's God like? There's an altar to an unknown God. And he says, let me tell you what this God is like. And he says in Acts 17, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So make no mistake, God wants to draw all people to himself while still holding a special regard for the people of Israel, his chosen people. It's both. In the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of heaven. He's taken up into heaven. Revelation chapter 7 says, After this I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, and they were from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This is how we know that in heaven, heaven's not limited to one particular ethnic group or one race, or people who speak one language. It is multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual. But what's interesting is right before verse 9 is verses 5, 6, 7, 8, where he says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, and Naphtali, and Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, 12,000. So the point is, it can be both. That God loves his people Israel, and he loves everybody outside of Israel as well. And the two work together. So we see God surrounding the people of Israel, rescuing them out of Egypt in the Exodus, wandering for 40 years. And now, boom, they cross the Jordan River and they're in the Promised Land and it's time to conquer the Promised Land. But how does God help them do it? He reaches out to a Gentile, Rahab, and Rahab gets folded into God's family. There's a famine and the Israelites have to leave and they go to Moab and and this woman named Ruth enters the picture. She is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite a foreigner, and God adopts her into the family, and she becomes the ancestor of King David. Jonah, who we we, we spent a whole fall teaching a series on Jonah. Jonah was sent to the Ninevites to preach. Tell them to repent. Tell them that I'm their God, and I want them to be close to me. And Jonah says, forget it, God. I don't care about those people. 
I'm an Israelite. I'm one of your, I'm one of your dudes. I'm one of your people. And God says, no. I'm about Israel, and I'm bigger than that. I'm about the Ninevites. Go. And we see it happen with the Magi. Jesus is born. The angels appear to the shepherds. The shepherds are Israelites. They come, they worship, they adore. And then God says, watch what I'm going to do now. Star up in the sky. And from a faraway land, here come the Magi to discover the same blessing is also for them. When we get into the New Testament, it's one of the central tensions between Jesus and the Pharisees. He fights this his entire ministry, where the Pharisees say, no, 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 God is ours, not theirs. And Jesus says, you're wrong, you're wrong. We get into the book of Acts, and there's the whole tension between uh, do the new converts have to become Jewish before they can become Christian? And Peter sees a vision of the sheet being lowered down, and how can you call something unclean that God has made? Everything is clean. So God uses a Gentile called Cornelius to expand God's family, and God is all about that. And here's the point, that there is somebody in North County who's not here yet who's going to come to faith through this church this year, and they're going to lead others to faith as well. And you could be part of that chain reaction. That is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, if no people outside of our assembly come to Jesus and come to faith in him this year through this church, then we as a Christian community are entering the death spiral. How can you say that? How can I say that? Because God is a generous, reproducing God. God never came into the world to be contained. God's infinite. He's eternal. He's he's expansive. His kingdom is expanding. It is always taking more and more and more. God's generous and he's hungry and he does his work through us. So if outsiders aren't being drawn to Christ, then, then, then we're doing something wrong. And Jesus warned about this to the Pharisees right before he went to the cross. He said, he said woe to you, W-O-E, like, hey, Pharisees, pay attention to what you're doing. He says, you'll cross the seas, you'll go across the land to win a convert, and then you, you bring them into the fold and you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are because they're not outward focused, they're just focused on keeping God to themselves. And Jesus warned about that. Hey, if God has always been in the business of bringing outsiders in, then who are we to stand in the way of that? That's the very business of God. Not to hoard the blessing. Say, no, isn't it so great? We've got this beautiful church campus. We do have a beautiful church campus. Got all these programs. Yeah, we have all these great programs. But it's not just for us. If the blessing ends in us and there's no outlet, there's no giving it away to other people, then we're not living the life of God that God has designed for us as a Christian community. Remember that it wasn't King Herod or Quirinius who came to seek Jesus. Herod just wanted to kill him. But it was outsiders. It was the magi that God wanted to get their attention and draw them in to be worshipers as well. So for that reason, as a church, we want to be sensitive towards culture not confrontational and condemning. 
Because if I meet somebody for the first time and my first conversation with them is, now let me tell you everything that you're doing wrong according to the Word of God, where's that relationship going to go? That's not how Jesus ministered. Jesus came up alongside the woman at the well and he knew everything about her, but he treated her in a sensitive way. And as a church, we've chosen to treat culture in a sensitive way. Not because we're wishy-washy and we don't believe in right and wrong or recognize the truth, but because we don't want to fumble the opportunity that is out there to reach outsiders. Secondly, we learn to say things in our speech like, I could be wrong, but this is how I think about it. That's a useful phrase, especially in a political election year. I could be wrong. <laughs> but this is what I think about it. We learn to say things like that. Third, we grow our hearts for outsiders. Jonah didn't have it. Jonah said, God, no way. I'm over here and they're over there. God, they're sinful, they're wicked, they're awful, and I'm not preaching to them. And God said, well, your heart needs to grow. We'll, we'll see about that. Let me throw you overboard to a fish, and we'll see if you change. God wants to grow our hearts towards people outside the Christian community. The Pharisees didn't have that. That's why Jesus teaches them this parable. He tells them this parable about the workers in the vineyard. And, and, and he said, it's like this. It's like, suppose there's a vineyard, and a guy hires people to work from the morning till night. And they work the entire day, and then an hour before quitting time, he brings other people in and puts them to work in the vineyard. And now it's quitting time, and he gives out the wages, and everybody gets the same thing. And he says, you're complaining, because this guy only worked an hour, and he's getting the same thing that you're getting. And here's the payoff line. The owner of the vineyard says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous. See, generosity is what God is all about. It's at the heart of his nature is to be generous. And I don't mean generous in the way that like, oh, it's 50-50, whether I, eh, I suppose I could give to that cause or give to that homeless person standing on the counter. That's a generous act. But God is overwhelmingly generous. That's why he created the world. That's why he created you. Sometimes kids will ask, why did God create the world? The truth of it is, he couldn't not create the world and be God because he is so overwhelmingly generous in his love. And when we talk about generosity, sometimes we get stuck on the financial thing. Oh, they want me to give money. Yeah, money is one aspect of generosity. The best thing that you have to give away and be generous is the life of God that is in you. So yes, give financially to people who are in need. Yes, do that. But the very best thing that you have to give away is the life of God that is in you, in your everyday interactions, the people that you bump into. Little by little by little, we lean into those people with love because God's heart as he watches from heaven on high, again, is not that we just keep all the blessings that he's given to us, mine, 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 but that we find ways to give it away. And then the nations will know that he is the Lord when he shows himself holy through us before their very eyes. 
So be generous in 2024. Be generous. I, I think that's the heart of the message of the star in the sky attracting the magi. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to preserve the story of what he did at Christmas time in the Bible, but he did it for us. He is giving it to us, not that we would keep it all to ourselves, but that we would take the blessings of God and then we would give it away. Let's pray about that right now. Let's pray about where you're at with having a generous spirit towards those outside the Christian community because until that star went up in the sky, the birth of Jesus was unknown to these outsiders, these magi, whoever they were, wherever they came from. And so God made it a point to advertise it far and wide. Hey, something special has happened here. You need to be a part of this. And when God is generous through you, and when you are generous with the life of God in you, it's as if God is using you as that star. Notice that the wise men were attracted by the star, but they didn't stop with the star. They didn't fall in love with the star. They didn't quit until they reached the reason for the star. And they fell down and adored and worshipped and gave what they had to Jesus. That's how it works. We want to live our lives as shining stars that catches the attention of the outside world. But not that people get hooked on us or the campus or the, the affect of the place. No, that people will be drawn to Jesus, the thing that has real value. Lord, today we pray that you would put on our minds and hearts the name of someone we know, someone in our lives who is outside the family of God. Who is it, God, that you want us to use our everyday access to? You want us to be generous with the life of God that is inside of us? Because even now, you are still about reaching outside the family and adopting others in, growing the kingdom of God. It happens through one-to-one -one relationships. It happens when our hearts get bigger and generous, more like yours. We pray that when we reach the end of 2024, you would have used us in such a way that now there's, there's one more person in our assembly who is leading one more person to you in our assembly, and you worked through us in that way. What a privilege that would be. So who is it, God? Impress that name, impress their face upon our hearts. We want to pray for that person daily and regularly. We want to pray that you'd set up divine appointments and encounters with them that we could be used by you to bring them to Jesus. We pray that you would make us holy in our hearts, in our bodies, in our minds, in our words, in our conduct, in our attitudes. Purify us. So the people, when, when they look at us and they go, you're a Christian. They're not impressed by us or repelled by us, but they see through us, past us, and they are drawn to you. That was the whole model of Jesus on earth, to make himself less, to lay himself down, 
and to die an ugly death on a cross that you could raise him up again and glorify him above all things where he belongs. We are players in this drama that you've laid out on the world. And Lord, we thank you for your generous heart, your generous spirit, your generous being. You didn't have to create all of this. And you didn't have to attend to our lives. You didn't have to care about every aspect of our being. You could have pulled the curtain shut and turned your back and said, well, I'm done with that. But you care about us deeply and richly and intimately. We pray that we'd reflect on the ways that you've been generous to us in 2023. The blessings that you've given us that you were not obligated to give. But we received them And now as the recipients of them, we've got an obligation to turn around and be generous to others. Might be forgiveness, might be the gift of a second chance, might be the healing of an illness or coming through a major surgery, might be the restoration of a friendship, a marriage, a relationship of some kind. Just as you've blessed us, we want to be a blessing to others and we want to to turn your blessings towards them. That's our prayer for this new year as we stand on the edge looking into 2024. We want to be excited about the opportunity to bring outsiders in as you led the Magi in to worship, recognize, and adore you. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.